Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful for the chance to be sitting here with my good friend, Chris Bloxham. Uh, Chris, how's life treating you today? Hey, man, I'm doing great. Good, good. Glad to, glad to sit down and have this conversation. You and I, behind the scenes, are always having conversations about uh, the history of Mormonism. Uh, it's really been a fun relationship moving out here and, and having somebody around me who knows Mormonism inside and out. As people can see right behind you, it's just a part of your church library. I mean, you've got, you probably have as much stuff on your shelf as Stephen Harper does, don't, don't you? Uh, well, I, I'm sure I have more books made by signature than I do that, than uh, Stephen does. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, today we want to talk about priesthood. And so, uh, folks, feel free to leave comments on both the, the Facebook link on Mormon Discussion Podcast. Uh, Mormon Discussion Podcast has a Facebook page. You can leave comments there. You can also leave comments on our YouTube uh, channel. There the video is as well. If you're watching this on my page, we may not see the comments. So make sure you go to those two places. Um, but feel free to leave comments as we're talking. Um, let's start off. And again, I just want this to be just a fun conversation between you and me as we talk about some of this history. But let's start off with our scriptures. Um, Book of Mormon talks about the, the Lamanites having a dark skin, specifically a skin like flint. Talks about them being cursed and that skin being a sign of the curse. You've got uh, the Pearl of Great Price, which mentions both Ham being cursed with a black skin. Um, as well as uh, Cain not being able to hold the priesthood. Um, your thoughts, Chris, maybe just on our our scriptures, and you're going to have to unmute. Yeah, you got yourself unmuted. So just uh, your thoughts on the scriptures and how they set the tone for Mormonism in us being able right from the beginning to have this space where racism can thrive. Yeah, I don't think it's any different than what general what, what other Christians thought about and were thinking about at the time. The Bible is uh, full of racism, and I don't think that that is any different than what we find in the Book of Mormon, and then later in the Pearl of Great Price. Yeah, and I find I just someone pointed this out a while back. Like we get stuck in these thought process. We think something's true because the authorities out there have told us. And we hold that ground as absolutely true until we start to use common sense and rational thinking and our critical thinking skills. There's this idea that Ham, I believe, is one of the folks who is with Noah on the ark, right? There's eight souls and one of them's Ham. And yeah. essentially what we're told is that Ham has a dark skin and the other seven people are white and the whole earth is flooded. Now, if everybody just uses their brains for a moment, when we land the, when Noah lands the ark after the 40, 40 days and he gets on dry... What's that? Yeah, in Missouri, Missouri. And gets, yeah, in Missouri, and gets on dry land. Well, actually goes from Missouri right to Mount Ariat over in the over in the Middle East. It's a long journey over those forty days of rain. <laughs> I um, think just, the Ariat uh, landing is kind of a pernicious lie by the Gentiles that they've invented, right? They yeah. actually landed in Missouri. Oh, Didn't okay. It? Well, they well, I thought they left the garden in Missouri. Oh, That's where Adam and Eve were. <laughs> they left one spot and landed in the other. They left um, from Missouri, right? Okay, and. Uh, you know, when you look at this idea that these eight souls, right, these eight souls land off this boat and seven of them are white and one of them has dark skin as they produce children, Spencer W. Kimball's prophecy would come true, right? Like this, yeah. the, the generations of ham would get lighter and lighter. <laughs> so well, I um, think about ham on the boat, you know, like, geez, man, I'm the only one that can cook good, right? I'm the only one that likes to dance. I mean, right. geez, you know, he had a long, he had a long journey. 
And you have the craziness of Noah's other family, like peeking on him naked and everything else. Like if there's a real problem, <laughs> it's with it's with the white folks, right? It, like <laughs> so it this sense of like we set up this space for racism uh, to be prevalent. And I just want to know we're gonna we're gonna use some humor today. Um, and all of us, all of us have biases and prejudices, Chris. Um, I don't think we can talk about this issue. You and I have a great sense of humor. We're not going to talk about this issue without joking a little bit. But I want to be clear that what these men said were were deeply racist, and uh, their comments were racist. And we're going to talk about how the modern church today tries to obfuscate and uh, and deflect and not really tackle this issue head on. So we've got the scriptures. They set up the uh, space for racism to exist. It's in our theology. It's in our canon. And as you point out, it's also in the Christian canon too. So it's not just Mormons. It's in the Bible as well. And then we get to uh, the race ban being created. Um, if I'm not mistaken, does this happen in 1852? Yeah, 1852. What, what's going on there? What's the story there? Well, there were a couple of things. There were uh, several black members of the church at the time. Um, Walker Lewis, you know, Joseph Bell, Ball, William McCary, um, Peter Kerr, known as Black Pete in Mormon in, in our uh, history, and then you know Elijah Abel. Those were the main players. Jane Manning James as well. So yeah, Brigham Young had some. Yeah. He had some stuff he had to deal with. In fact, I, if I remember correctly, Brigham Young baptized Joseph Ball, Bell. I think his name was Bell. Joseph Ball actually baptized him in thirty-two. Yeah. Um, the the curse. What like so? There's these prominent. I was just going to say that there are these early uh, black members of the church and um, what happens that Brigham Young says something in 1852 and what does he say? Well, uh, there are a couple things. Walker Lewis uh, is a prominent member of the church. He's a, a barber in Boston, if I remember correctly. And he goes to Nauvoo, immigrates to Nauvoo and is given a patriarchal blessing by John Smith, Joseph Smith's uncle wherein he says he's from the tribe of Canaan. Um, that's, a, that's not a tribe that I've heard anyone ever say their patriarchal blessing assigns him to. But it was the tribe that was designated for black members of the church. He had a son who married a, a, a white lady. Uh, same thing with, um, I, I believe, Elijah Abel. had a, No, no, no. It was, uh, I think, Joseph... Uh, Joseph Ball also had a daughter who had uh, a son who had married a white girl. So it was really interracial marriage that was what was on Brigham's mind, I think, more so than black members of the church. Yeah. And, you know, it should be noted, you know, certainly Joseph Smith is promoting some of this racism as well, just alone by the theology of, of the Book of Mormon. But on some level, like Joseph is being more progressive if I'm not mistaken, Elijah Abel certainly had the priesthood. We know that. But if I'm not mistaken, he was ordained to the 70. Yeah. Yeah. All these guys uh, were ordained to the priesthood. Everyone that I mentioned, except for Jane. Um, and Joseph, Joseph Bell also led the largest congregation outside of Nauvoo. He was the branch president in Boston. So these were respected mm. men and trusted. But Brigham has this struggle with interracial marriage and... And eventually in 1852 comes out and makes a statement and he, the statement is pretty bold, right? Like the statement is essentially saying like, if no one said this before, um, if nobody said this before, then, then I'm trying to look, I'm looking over here at the comments. Somebody says, my mic is a little hot. If somebody can just explain what they mean by that, if it's a little loud, I'll get quieter. If it's a little soft, I'll get louder. 
um, Brigham makes it clear that uh, that essentially, like, if no one, no prophet said it before, I'm going to say it now. These men can't have the priesthood, right? Yeah, um, it it wasn't. It wasn't so much that they couldn't have it. They couldn't exercise it. He didn't take the priesthood from anyone. He just took away their privilege to exercise it. So several of these men were priests, uh, and they couldn't even act in that capacity. He just he essentially took away their ability to exercise the priesthood and didn't, of course, ordain anyone else to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, uh, so you've got Brigham Young essentially putting the priesthood ban in place. And the, the, the brethren very quickly kind of wrap their arms around this. And it's obviously Brigham's leading, uh, leading the church at the, at the time. And uh, there's not much room. Um, there's not much room to break those rules because he's the prophet of the church. And so you now start to see church leaders begin to uh, have to answer questions about why we're doing that. And so they begin to give this theology. And to be honest, just made up theology. Even we admit now is the Mormons that are active and believing in the leaders of the church, they now believe that this is just made up theology. Um, what are some of the things that are kind of happening in the background uh, from, let's say, you know, whatever, 1852 up until 1978, <clears throat> minus those two dates, what's going on in between those two? Uh, in Utah, well, Utah wants to become a state. But, of course, the government isn't going to allow that, so they decided to go for being a, uh, a territory. Um, but they had the question, they had to face the question, of would they, would they become a slave territory or would they become a free territory? And Brigham Young has no problem with becoming a slave territory where it becomes legal and okay to own slaves. Yeah, and you've got, you know, you've got these things that happen... <clears throat> in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, which I think really ramps it up. And I think for the first time puts some of this stuff down uh, in print in ways that we now can, can share with future generations. And in the wrestle for me, for the 23 people who are watching right now, the, the wrestle for me is that I was taught that these men are prophets, seers, and revelators. And that they had direct communication with God and that they have the spirit of discernment and that they have conversations with God directly in some way that I don't really have access to. And, uh, and as these men communicate with God, they're able to tell what's real and what's truth and what is air and what's false. And uh, there, I think every Mormon who understands this issue has to wrestle with how, how, because elder Oaks, we're going to get to this in a little bit. Elder Oaks still holds, wants to hold the position for the church that the ban is from God. Like we, the bans from God guys. And, and the theories behind it, um, those theories are are made up. Those are false. We disavow those. And I'm trying to figure out, like, how do we pick and choose? Like, oh, this thing we definitely know is from God and this thing isn't. And the first one I want to put up here on the screen, uh, Chris, let me find it here, is uh, Nelson Lowry. I'm going to share my screen. And it's the Nelson Lowry letters. You can see it up there, um, listeners. And... Uh, your thoughts, I mean, the, it looks like this guy was a, a, a prominent member of the church, um, felt like he had a relationship with these men that he could write them. It looks like he went to Cuba for some missionary work and eventually um, sees that the church can't progress in these areas so long as it holds this priesthood ban. And he can't make sense of the ban because the reasons behind it and the theology there just doesn't seem to be logical to him. Um, he's one of these early critical thinkers in the 1940s uh, 
of Mormonism. Uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson, uh, your thoughts, Chris, on this dialogue back and forth between uh, the first presidency and this guy? Quite a quite an interesting thing that we have it. Yeah, it's uh, and because we have all the documentation between Dr. Nelson and the brethren, you you get to see it develop. It starts with his friend Heber Meeks writing him and uh, asking him. Um, who uh, Dr. Nelson had lived in Cuba for a year uh, working in the Caribbean and Heber Meeks writes him and essentially says, Hey, what's, uh, what do you think about the possibilities of the church going into the Caribbean? So Lowry Nelson, Dr. Nelson writes the brethren and says, I don't see any reason why we would have any problem. Right. You know, kind of an innocent question. Um, and they write back and, and say, yeah, that's, we, we can't do that. And there's a famous sentence in that exchange. I was going to look for it real quick where he says, I hope my church isn't racist. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up here. I'll racist. pull it up. Um, he, uh, you can kind of see his thought process where he, he's, he says, you know, I, I mean, I always knew we kind of had a policy here or at least a practice of not letting black people have the priesthood, but I, I certainly don't think that's doctrine or hope it's not doctrine. Um, you know, I hope it's not been crystallized into a, into a doctrine. Um, and he even says there are no pure races on this. The anthropologists are in agreement. Of course, this does not mean that Negro blood exists throughout the Nordic Mediterranean and even, and, or even the Negro, because I think our system of religious organization could serve the world Cuban people as no other system could. He's a really smart guy. He, he's not uh, um, trying to find that one quote in there. And while you're looking for that, um, the money quote will share. If, if you can find that, would be great. And then the money quote comes after that. It's on page seven of the PDF. It's on the second page of like the second letter of, of uh, the church officially back to Dr. Lowry Nelson. Um, man, I'm just grateful this document exists because it it really shows how these these uh, men um, these men frame these kinds of things and how they think about these kinds of things. <clears throat> and you've got George Albert Smith; he's the president, prophet, seer, revelator. Those are the labels we give the man. And then his counselors, J. Reuben Clark Jr. and David O. McKay, uh, first presidency, 1947. Um, Dr. Lowry Nelson is a professor at the University of Minnesota. He's in the Department of Agriculture. Just, just interesting that this guy's thinking and wrestling uh, with this stuff. If you have it, great. If, if, if not, no biggie. We can move on to kind of the money quote and talk about oh, kind of the doctrine of the church. <clears throat> I've got it here. Dr. Nelson says, I've always known that certain statements had been made by authorities regarding the status of the Negro, but I had never assumed that they constituted irre irrevocable doctrine. I hope no final word has been said on the matter. I must say that I have never been able to accept the idea and never shall. I do not believe that God is a racist. Now, that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, we got to be clear. There, there are clear warnings from the first presidency towards him for just questioning these things, for talking about it, for asking questions. They make it clear, like, you're on really thin ice here. Be careful, Mr. Brother Brother Nelson. You, you really are flirting right with the edge of your church membership. 
in now this guy's doing in 1947. If this guy says this in 1979, he's held up as just the normal average member of thinking member of the church, right? Hey, man. Yeah. Hey, we're on the same team here. <laughs> and uh, the and and so you know he did this at a great stake to himself. He he took a huge risk, and I'm always I'm always amazed at people who do this kind of thing, ask these kinds of questions, and present this kind of courage prior to the internet. Quote here, I'll pull up the full screen. The money quote here is uh, these last three paragraphs. Um, in fact, let's do the last four here on page seven of the PDF. And I have linked that PDF, I believe, to the uh, to the Facebook and YouTube uh, videos. But uh, it says, your position seems to lose sight of the revelations of the Lord touching the preexistence of our spirits, the rebellion in heaven, and the doctrines that our birth into this life and the advantages under which we may be born have relationship in the life hereto, heretofore. From the days of the prophet Joseph Smith, even until now, it has been the doctrine of the church, never questioned by any of the church leaders. Now, remember, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks have that quote where they're in that uh, CES broadcast, and they say, you know, we've known the leaders of the church ever since the beginning of time, and they've they've never, ever, ever, you know, lied. None of them would lie. So the idea that, you know, George Albert Smith also claims to know all the leaders of the church, all the things they've said, and um, and it seems odd in the face of the fact that most Mormon leaders seem to not know their history very well. But you have this uh, idea that from the very beginning of time, from Joseph Smith until now, it has been the doctrine of the church never questioned by any of the church leaders that the Negroes are not entitled to the full blessings of the gospel. Um, that's in, that's insane. Like that's so. Then he goes on. Furthermore, your ideas, as we understand them, appear to contemplate the intermarriage of the Negro and white races, a concept which has heretofore been most repugnant to most normal-minded people from the ancient patriarchs until now. God's rule for Israel, his chosen people, has been uh, indigenous. In, indigenous. Modern Israel has been similarly directed. We are not unmindful of the fact that there is growing tendency, particularly among some educators, which is a poke back at Dr. Lowry Nelson, mm -hmm. as it manifests itself in this area toward the breaking down of race barriers in the matter of intermarriage between whites and blacks, but it does not have the sanction of the church and is contrary to church doctrine. I don't. I don't think you can interpret George Albert Smith's words any other way. Your your thought on him presenting as prophet of the church the doctrine that those of color are less valiant and have been given this skin as a curse. Uh, yeah, he's not equivocating there. It's it's crystal clear. Um, that was a doctrine, not a policy. Not a policy. Yeah. And so you have this correspondence, 1947, but that's not official. It's, it's off the books, right? It's, it is, uh, it's a private uh, conversation between the first presidency and a, and a member of the church. And uh, you know, when any, in any one leader teaches something, it's not accepted as the doctrine, like you have all that nonsense. So that's then we, we have to add on time. top of it. Every time we don't like what's every time, if it coincided with uh prophetic revelation we'd be quoting it all over the place everyone would know what the La dr lowry nelson just, yeah are. yeah if it was if it was george albert smith's telling at the sooner or later this would change they would have this the, as a footnote in the gospel topic essays yeah 
Yeah, we use it for what we want to use it for. So the next thing, though, is that it cements it, which is this is a first presidency statement sent out to everyone. Uh, this was sent out to all the wards and stakes of the church. This is August 17th, 1949. This is two years later. And here's the, the wording here. The attitude of the church with reference to the Negroes remains as it always stood. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord. See, this is what Elder Oaks has to deal with when we get to his audio. This, um, to the, let's see here, sorry. Direct commandment from the Lord on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that the Negroes may become members of the church, but they are not entitled to the priesthood at present time. The prophets of the Lord have made several statements as to the operation of the principle President Brigham Young said, why, so, why are so many of the inhabitants of the earth, earth cursed with the skin of blackness? It comes in consequence of their fathers rejecting the power of the holy priesthood and the law of God. They will go down to death. And when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain. Now, again, the church loves to put up on a pedestal this idea um, that uh, Brigham Young always said that this curse would be lifted. But we ought to remember Brigham Young put that with a caveat, which is that all the other uh, children of God with other skins of color, they would all get their, their uh, chance first before uh, those of color, those of uh, African-American descent would get their chance, correct? Yeah. Brigham Young was big into ordering people uh, based on their uh, birth. And their skin color. You like that. Yeah. 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 Yep. Except when it came to the quorum of the 12. He didn't ah. order that one that way. <laughs> oh, now no. Now it's seniority. Orson yeah, Pratt, he, sorry about your luck. He didn't change that in 1875 when he saw Orson Pratt getting, whoa, whoa, Orson Pratt could be the next guy. You better change this. And he's a little too defiant for, for my good taste. <laughs> Guy's a little too smart for his britches. Um, says they will go down to death when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood. Then the curse will be removed from the seed of Cain, and they will then come up and possess the priesthood and receive all the blessings which are now entitled to. So really using the Brigham Young prophecy in air quotes really isn't fair and accurate. Brigham did not prophesy that it would happen the way the church did it. Uh, which is long before all of Heavenly Father's other spirit children were born and had a chance to receive these blessings. Um, so again, the, the last paragraph there, the position of the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind, namely the conduct of the spirits in the pre-mortal existence has some determining effect upon the conditions and circumstances under which these spirits take on mortality, and that while the details of this principle have not been made known, Sorry, give me a second here. Um, the mortality is a privilege that is that it is given to those who maintain their first estate and that the worth of the privilege is so great that the spirits are willing to come to earth and take on bodies no matter what the handicap, and we'll get to that here in a second, no matter what the handicap may be as to the kinds of bodies they are to secure and that among the handicaps, among, so this isn't just people of color getting a curse, Chris. This is other handicaps, which you and I, you know, you and I tease out sometimes having these conversations. There's some really crazy doctrine in Mormonism. Failure of the right to enjoy immortality, the blessings of the priesthood, is a handicap which spirits 
are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle, there is no injustice whatsoever involved in this deprivation as to the holding of the priesthood by the Negroes signed the first presidency. What other handicaps is he is he talking about there, Chris? Well, I think he's talking about anything that's considered a non-white or non-functioning body, non-ideal you know, ideal body. Yeah. Can you imagine you're sitting in general conference next to Timmy, your 11-year-old son. He's a quadriplegic. He's in a wheelchair. And you you get this doctrine over the pulpit, which it's a first presidency letter. Who knows where it was said and what was said? We also know that I think it was, uh, was it, it wasn't President Kimball. Who was the, it was Harold B. Lee. Harold B. Harold Lee, Lee made the comment in his book that physical handicaps and mental handicaps are also part of those who are less valiant in the pre-mortal life. When you consider that, and you're sitting next to your 11-year-old son, Timmy, who's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, and the brethren are telling you that Timmy was less valiant in the pre-mortal life, now you, you already, life's already hard enough changing Timmy's diaper, feeding Timmy with a, you know, feeding Timmy three times a day, um, giving him a bath. Like life is already difficult. And now you're told that it's Timmy's fault. Timmy just should have been a little more righteous in the pre-earth life. And Timmy would have been fine, but because he was, and again, this isn't my term, this is theirs, a fence sitter. Um, because he was a fence sitter, Timmy now has these physical handicaps and he's now a burden on his family. That's insane. Yeah. I'm guessing that that didn't play well, and that's why now it's the exact opposite. When we have children that are handicapped or disabled, the church now says that those were more valiant spirits in the last in the in the previous life, and that we've been blessed to have them in our families. Um, yeah, the yeah. most the most valiant, save for the last days, mm -hmm. the most valiant spirits, all of those in handicapped bodies, which is also just it's just another point to these guys just make it up as they go along. Um, these guys are constantly just winging it. And when it doesn't stick and when there's enough resistance, now they just disavow the things of the past. Um, so you would think 1940s, okay, at some point the 78 revelation comes, there has to be, um, there has to be some slow shift away from these things. But we get another one of these letters in 1969. See if I can find that one. 1969. And so... Um, Whoop, let me change it here. So for the audience too, so that they can read along one more time. Let's see if that takes up. There we go. To the general authorities, regional representatives of the 12 stake presidents. This is nine years and actually about eight and a half years uh, before the revelation comes on the priesthood. Uh, stake presidents, mission presidents, and bishops, dear brethren, in the confusion that has arisen, it was decided at a meeting of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, to restate restate the position of the church with regard to the Negro, both in society and in the church. First, may we say that we know something of the sufferings of those. <laughs> okay, I get, I get, I get Joseph Smith had some persecution, but it's not, it wasn't without merit, right? Like he's hitting, he's having sex with 14 and 15 and 16 year olds. He's marrying the women who are married to other men, the wives of other men. He's, he's putting lots of crazy theology. And, and then these men, 1969, these white, privileged European men leading a church that is growing, um, these men about discrimination, 
That to me seems insane while they have a monopoly on the state of Utah in 1969. <laughs> these men know it. These men know what it's like to be held down. These men get what discrimination uh, is. That's insane. Uh, um, let's see here. First, we may say that we know something of the sufferings of those who are discriminated against in denial of their civil rights and constitutional privileges. Our early history as a church is a tragic story of persecution and oppression. Not when you understand the history. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons for why uh, the church got a, a hard time as it moved from state to state. And most of that really starts and originates with Joseph Smith and his <clears throat> practice of polygamy. Um, our, her, our, our early history as a church is a tragic story of persecution and oppression. Our people repeatedly were denied the protection of the law. No, no, no. We were breaking the law. Um, they were driven and plundered, robbed and murdered by mobs um, who in many instances were aided and abetted by those sworn to uphold the law. By the way, if you read the gospel topic essay on violence in early Utah, it becomes clear that the Mormons were uh, propagators of that violence and, uh, dishonesty and, and unhealthy treatment of others as well. Uh, we as a people have experienced the bitter fruits of civil discrimination and mob violence. Well, we've had some mobs of our own. And then it gets down here. It follows, therefore, that we believe the Negro, as well as those of other races, should have his full constitutional privileges um, as a member of society. And we hope that members of the church everywhere will do their part as citizens to see these rights are held uh, inviolate. Uh, each citizen must have equal opportunities and protection under the law with reference to civil rights. Uh, they don't seem to do that early on with the LGBT folks, but they seem to be propping that up here because that's not even an issue in their milieu uh, at this time. But then it says, however, matters of faith, conscience, and theology are not within the purview of the civil law. The First Amendment of the Constitution specifically provides that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints affecting those of the Negro race who choose to join the church falls wholly within the category of religion. It has no bearing upon matters of civil rights. In no case or degree does it deny the Negro his full privileges as citizen of the nation. Uh, but this has no relevancy. Next sentence has no relevancy uh, in terms of the church, those individuals, we suppose, do not believe in the divine origin and nature of the church, nor that we have the priesthood of God. Therefore, if they feel we have no priesthood, they should have no concern with any aspect of our theology on priesthood. Other than we're causing trauma, we're causing pain, we're causing hurt, we are perpetuating unhealthy attitudes of, of white members towards uh, those members of color. Um, well, they no, should have no concern have with Based on the year, we have we're in Brazil at this point. We have a, a mission in Ghana, I believe. I mean, we're you know we have black members of our church that we're actively pros proselyting or at least ministering to in these other countries. I mean, this is yeah, and, and we're dealing. Yeah, with. we're saying hard stuff. Yeah, the church. I mean, Dr. Lowry Nelson understands in 1947 that we're growing. And if we're going to be a worldwide church and fulfill the prophecies of God, then we're going to have to go all across North and South America and all across the world. As, as, that, uh, as that little quote came out back in the 1830s from Joseph Smith sitting around with a small band of brethren, um, these guys, even in the 40s, are seeing that if we're going to grow and fulfill prophecy, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with this issue head on. And the church seems to be deeply stubborn as it moves into these countries. And we're having to deal with 
black, um, Brazilian saints, we're going to be okay with. We, we've decided that Brazilian saints are okay, although they look very dark-skinned and they look very, uh, you know, like African, like they have African descent and blood in them. But African saints, no, no way. So it seems to be, uh, you know, if you are have African blood in you, that seems to be where the church has drawn the line between acceptable and non-acceptable. Yeah, the, the quote here points to, um, from the beginning of this dispensation, Joseph Smith and all succeeding presidents of the church have taught that Negroes, while spirit children of a common father and progeny of our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, were not yet to receive the priesthood for reasons which we believe are known to God, but which he has not made fully known to man. So you start to see now the softening as, as early as 1969, that the ban we're going to, we have to hold the ban came from God. Otherwise we have to admit we don't have our shit together and we don't know what we're doing, right? Like if we acknowledge the ban isn't from God either, then, then now we have to deal with the fact that why should we trust prophets and apostles with anything? Well, so you have this inkling. Middle to tail end of the civil rights uh, era. You know, the civil rights era has been yeah. full swing since the fifties here. So, you know, nothing it, occurs it in the background. It, it kind of makes sense that the church is like, well, maybe we should at least take the first dip our toe into softening here. You know, but you got Mark Peterson saying that, you know, those, sure, those of color will make the celestial kingdom, but they're going to go there as servants. Right. So you still uh, have yeah. lots of rhetoric in the background where they're still saying really, uh, really dumb stuff. Mm -hmm. Um our living prophet, David O. McKay, has said the seeming discrimination by the church towards, toward the Negro is not something which originated with man, but goes back into the beginning with God. Uh, Revelation assures us that this plan uh, antedates man's mortal existence, extending back to man's pre-existent state. So now they're saying, like, we're not going to talk about the theories directly because we don't really know, but it still has to do with valiancy in the pre-mortal life. You know, nod, nod, wink, wink. Yeah. Um, it's it's really now starting to couch things carefully, but but the real doctrine hasn't changed, which is that those of color and those of possible other handicaps were less valiant uh, in the church, and that's the reason they have these physical or mental characteristics. Um, so that's 1969. So let's uh, let's skip ahead here now to 1978, and there's lots of pressure on the church as usual. The church is late. The church has been around. 150 years, and um, the church is late again it, on this issue, and it finally realizes it has to do something. We have a record of David O. McKay uh, asking. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna share some links here. I'll ask you a question. Let you talk for a moment, but I'm gonna share the links from each of these documents people are asking for. Um, so I will share those here in just a moment. But the 1978 revelation. Any thoughts on kind of anything else happening in the background here? I know Stuart Udall. Uh, Senator, any other things kind of happening that are going on that, uh, you know, I know I know there's some documentation of David O. McKay asking for the ban to be lifted, and he just has silence from God, uh, which is kind of strange, right? Because he's a prophet. Um, yeah, I, thoughts I, there I, on what's going on in the background? There is, there's lots of stuff going on in the 60s in the church with uh, considering lifting the ban. Um, I was thinking about Sterling McMurrin. You remember that story where prominent LDS scholar on his way to his excommunication, runs into David O. McKay and says, where are you going? I'm on my way to go to my disciplinary council. And David O. McKay and he are really good friends. And he says, well, take a minute. Tell me what's going on. He says, well, I disagree with several policies in the church, especially the one 
having to deal with black members. And after speaking with David O. McKay, he, uh, uh, David O. McKay says, well, tell the stake president that I will be your first witness at your, at your trial. And the trial is dropped and it doesn't go forward. But you remember Sterling McMurrin says to David O. McKay, please say this publicly. Um, and we have this because of his recording of it. But essentially, David O. McKay says, according to McMurrin, I don't like the policy either. I, I, I would love to see it lifted. I would love to see it go away. And, but he's not willing to make it public. The other thing that came to me as you were reading it is this letter is signed by David O. McKay, Hugh B. Brown, and, and Eldon Tanner. These are not men. These are not minorities. These are, and Eldon Tanner is a multimillionaire, made his money in oil and gas. Hubie Brown is a, you know, uh, an attorney in, in Salt Lake. These are not guys that, uh, in my mind, know what it was like to be a black member, of a black um, uh, citizen in the 60s, when they say they know yeah. what suffering is. And David O. McKay is as white as they come, right? White suit, white hair, white face. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's as white as they come. <laughs> the guy, the guys never, it didn't matter, you know, it didn't matter what setting he was in. Um, he, he operated from a privileged state within Mormonism very quickly as a young man. Uh, if you remember, he is the new apostle called when John W. Taylor has his disciplinary council. So that's how far back we go. Right. Yeah. He's the one that's going, uh, oh, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, polygamy. I, I thought we ended that like what? a decade ago. <laughs> right, right. He doesn't know anything about polygamy. He's kind of brought into that fresh and new. And John W. Taylor's like, uh, you might not want to think of it that way. That's right. Uh... Um, so I'm going to share the screen here. Let me let me increase the size of the image. But the church is under pressure. It tries to act like it's never operating from a position of being under pressure, but it's always under pressure. And uh, that pressure causes its doctrines to change all the time. In fact, we'll put up a quote here by Greg Prince, hopefully later, but no doctrine in this church hasn't changed. Every doctrine's changed. So the, the, the priesthood revelation happens, 1978. And uh, your wife, your wife, Dawn, she shared something with me uh, that I want to put up on the screen, Chris, and have you speak to. Um, if you look at the picture I've got up on the screen, what uh, what's going on here? What's what's what? what's this story? What's you got a hold of my who, wife? Who is this? Yeah, your wife gave me a cool little story that I wanted to ask you to share here on the web or on the on the broadcast. Um, but this is a picture, and that guy, the guy, uh, the kid standing there with another kid on his shoulders, that looks a little bit like you. Well, yeah, that's me. I'm kneeling on the grass there. That's my brother Fitz on my shoulders, and that's my best friend Bonky on my left. So. We're living in Sacramento at the time. My dad's in law school, and we were we just were very, very, very poor, living in this very poor neighborhood. And all of my friends were black or or Hispanic, uh, no white kids in this neighborhood at all. So Bonky had an older brother named Creevy, and Bonky was probably my age exactly. I'm probably six in that picture. That's probably 1976. Um, I was born in '68, so yeah, I'm probably six. Eight. I'm eight in that picture. So, you know, we played all the time. I'm at Bonky's house. He's at my house. His mom cooks for us. My mom cooks for, for us. And um, back then, primary was like on a Tuesday night. So I say to Bonky, hey, man, why don't you come to primary with me? That way we can keep playing. And he's like, sure. And, uh, you know, we go get in the car. The truck back there was our family 
car, that green uh, Chevy truck. My dad comes out and he goes, what the hell's going on? What's Bonky doing in the truck? And I said, well, we're going to primary. You're just being a missionary, Chris. Every member's a missionary. <laughs> well, they've what been year is this, in, you said? Uh, this is in 76. And they've been okay. saying in primary, if you have friends, bring them. Bring your friends. Um, <laughs> they didn't clarify, did they? Well, they didn't clarify. I mean, uh, and so anyway, my dad, uh, you know, kind of says, hey, kids, get out of the truck. So we, we hop out and my dad pulls me aside and says, son, they don't let black kids in the church. <laughs> and I'm like, are you what? This is bonky, man. This is my friend. And he was like, get in the truck, man. We'll talk on the way to the church. And he. So you had to, you had to look at bonky and say, bonky, not this time. I'm sorry, man. Probably never, and not this time for sure. <laughs> Wrong. But you know, we were kids. You're like, right, and you fine. guys were just playing. You were you were in the middle of hanging out in your yeah, hanging yeah, out we, in your treehouse. You guys were just playing around. You guys uh, were building a fort in the backyard, and we didn't even have tree. You just thought like yeah. I'd be a good missionary, and I take yeah. We just had yeah. You take Bonky to church, and like you're just doing your <laughs> we you're just doing your LDS duty. Take turns, you know, touching the power lines with and stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Throwing bottles against rocks. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I said, sorry, man, I guess uh, oh. we're going to work tonight. And he's like, oh, whatever. Went and went, went, ran off and did something else. But this is when my dad have a clue. Me. He has no idea. No idea. This is when my dad tells me that, son, you know, black people can't be Mormons. I'm like, what? Why? What do you mean? That doesn't make any sense. And he's like, yeah, I don't get it either, but whatever. But, yeah. You know, so, there's one person in our audience right now, Chris, probably Mike Tannehill, but there's one person in our audience going, they could join the church. They were allowed to get baptized. They enjoyed almost all the privileges that a, a, an average member of the church could enjoy. Like, it's just nonsense. Who who wants to be a second-class citizen? Who who yeah. wants to subject themselves to that? And thankfully, en enough uh, people of color did subject themselves to that to continually put pressure on the church that at some point it, it had to change. Well, it also says my dad's mindset in 1976. He just kind of cut to the chase. He was in law school. He was a smart guy. He's like, hey, black, they don't want black members right now, man. Or at least they don't want anyone that is black is not really welcome in the church. He didn't nuance it. Right. By saying, well, you know, they could join. They just couldn't bless their children or, you know, baptize them or really do anything except attend. So you were, you were said you were 10 years old in 19... Uh, 78, right? You're 10 years yeah. old when that revelation happened. Nine years old, 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty young. But what do you what do you remember personally about uh, that? Um, I remember be, there being a buzz at church and, and all of the adults smiling and, you know, hugging and talking about how nice it is now that uh, everybody can now hold the priesthood and everyone can now is now welcome in full fellowship. And I didn't quite get it at the time, but... Um, you know, as a kid, you look at it and you go, all right, I, I don't know why everyone couldn't in the first place. But when you're a kid, you're just, you know, you're just kind of like everybody. You don't really see skin color or class or, or that. At least I didn't. I was one of the poorest kids at school. Yeah, that, that form of tribalism, that form of tribalism thing we pass down to each other. It's something that we teach our kids. Uh, I can remember, you know, I wasn't Mormon. I grew up in a family that told racist jokes. I grew up in a family that made racist comments and uh, certainly was, um, certainly developed some of those attitudes myself because they were perpetuated to me. Um, well, you know, you do, do you have any recollection of like anything? Oh, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, man, there's some Mormon rituals that you didn't uh, miss out on that are kind of scarring. You know, I remember the day I got baptized. First time I saw a bunch of naked men in a locker room was the day I got baptized. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't healthy. I wasn't excited. There's my dad naked. There's our neighbor naked. Everyone's changing in the locker room, dripping wet. Uncle Gary, <laughs> Uncle Gary's there naked. He's <laughs> nobody prepared me for that. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know it's a few a few years later, and uh, and then you put the shield on too, right? And yeah, so then you yeah, got yeah. more of more of pretty much being naked and people reaching in and more doing strange stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the one thing. If you're Mormon, especially if you've been prior to '92, you better get ready. There's a lot of weird stuff coming, brother. Um, <laughs> So your thoughts on, do you remember your dad saying anything or what his attitude was when it happened? Like, was he grateful that it occurred? Was like, what are your, what are your remembrance of like your dad at the time and his, like, I, I don't think Mormons could help, but hold some racism because these views were taught to them. What was your memory of kind of how your dad coped with the 78 revelation? Uh, I don't remember anything specific to me, but I remember he and my mom having a, a conversation about uh, there was a newspaper article that they had on the table that they were discussing and that, you know, it was, we were still living in California and he, uh, they were, you know, he was raised in Las Vegas and my mom was raised in um, Southern Utah uh, and then later Las Vegas. So they weren't, you know, racism to them was, um, being in Las Vegas, we, you know, there were black people everywhere. They had black friends at our house that had black children. Um, he worked in the DA's office. So, you know, it was, it was, a. I think the only thing I remember them saying is, is, you know, finally, just finally, I remember that type of, uh, that type of conversation. Um, but. That's, that seems to be how prophetic prophet seers and revelators in this church are to the point where they, when they make a change, the church membership is like, finally, like two hour church, finally, finally. Uh, right? Like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to allow LGBT people to, we're going to promote civil rights secularly among LGBT people in Utah. Finally, mm -hmm. we're going to yeah. give people of color, the priesthood. Finally, um, we're going to remove sexism out of the temple. Finally, like it feels like to be a real prophet seer and revelator, you have to be late to the game. You have to be the last guy on the planet who realizes that you're doing something wrong and shitty. Yeah. When it comes to social <laughs> issues, we seem to never be leading the pack, do we? Never. I guess no, the only one would no. be women voting, but that wasn't for any altruistic reason. That just no, that hard. wasn't because God said he wants women to vote. It's because Utah would have a lot more political power. <laughs> a lot more exactly. influence on national elections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, always seems to be that logical, rational reason for why we change and do things because it ends up hurting the church in the long run if we wait any longer. Mm -hmm. um, so the 78 relation happens. But the thing that – so Elder McConkie, I'll put this up on the screen here. Bruce R. McConkie is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and um, he um, is given the task of essentially – speaking to the 1978 revelation and giving so that members of the church can understand what happened. And so he says here, this is on the right-hand side here, so people can see it and I'll share the screen again. All right. So here on the right side 
Um, this is Bruce R. McConkie. Uh, he says, and I have no hesitancy whatsoever. And I guess I could do his voice, but that would take a lot longer because that dude talks slow. Uh, and I have no hesitancy whatever in saying that before the Lord comes in all nations, we will have congregations that, and remember, this is 81. This is this is after, or 19, maybe it's just in, still in 78, but it's after the, the 1978 revelation. Um, in all those nations, we will have congregations that are stable, secure, devoted, and sound. We will have stakes of Zion. We will have people who have progressed in spiritual things to the point where they have received all the blessings of the house of the Lord. That is the destiny. Too bad you couldn't see that a few decades earlier. Um, we have revelations that tell us that the gospel is to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people before the second coming of the Son of Man. We have revelations which recite that when the Lord comes, he will find those who speak every tongue and are members of every nation and kindred. So he's giving all this fluffy language to, look, we did it, and it was always prophesied. It was always going to happen. Um, but here we get to where he gets as close as he can, walks right up to the wall of giving an apology. We have read these passages and their associated passages for many years. We have seen what the words say and have said to ourselves, yes, it says that, but we must read out of it the taking of the gospel and blessings of the temple to the Negro people because they are denied certain things. There are statements in our literature by the early brethren, which, have, which we have interpreted to mean that the Negroes would not receive the priesthood in mortality. So he's acknowledging that we're using the Brigham Young uh, prophecy incorrectly. He says, I have said the same things and people write me and say, you said such and such. And how is it now that we do such and such? Of course, he doesn't want to say what such and such is. And all I say to that is that it is time, it is that it is time disbelieving people repented and got in line and believed in a living modern prophet. Forget everything that I have said, or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation, we spoke with a limited understanding. And without the light and knowledge that now has come into the world. Um, do you think it's funny, Bill, he, that he that why, goes all the way back to Brigham Young and George Q. Cannon? He, he knows full well that we have modern comments. I think that's a, a, a strategy that he did. He went back to Brigham Young and George. He went 100 years back, back when he knows about the 1949 First Presidency letter. He knows what we said in 1969. He's trying to distance and himself. It's not, just, it's not just this issue he does this on. Too when uh, Eugene uh, writes him and others are writing him and asking about Adam God and other strange doctrines in the early church, Bruce R. McConkie is very quick to respond that he knows these quotes, he knows the history, he knows all these this documentation. Keep in mind, it's his father-in-law who he's super close to, who's hiding all the shit in the church history vault, including the Seer Stone and the uh, you know 1832 account and possibly the 1835 account. Right. He's got, you know, he's got the safe in there. I'm the only guy who knows the combination. I've got all the stuff. Uh, <laughs> right. And so he knows, he knows the early documentation. If anything, I can just picture him and his father all sitting around and reading all these things because he knows these things intimately. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie does not get a free pass. The guy understands all these quotes. And often when presented with the Adam God doctrine, for instance, he often publicly tried to say, like, oh, we misconstrue Brigham's word. We misunderstand. They've been taken out of context. And then privately, he's like, yeah. say that again. 
only said it, you know, on a, on a few occasions, on a handful of occasions. You know. Yeah, and then privately acknowledges it's all over the place, and we just disavow it, and we we don't believe it anymore. It's the craziness of Mormonism. Um, so you have Bruce R. McConkie doing that in 1981. I think um, I quote. It seems to me to be in 79. Sorry, 78. It was. It was August of 78. It was a month later. I keep thinking 81. I don't know why. Um, let me look here and see what the next little spot is Maybe to kind of talk about. You're thinking of 81 because there was a lot of good songs that came out in 1981, right? Was there? What was some of the songs in 81? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I was three years old. I was just <laughs> three years old, really? Oh, man. I was rocking. Yeah, Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper was big back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Cindy yeah. Lauper. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Who else? Um well, we might have uh, to do one on music one of these times because if that's all you remember from nineteen from the early eighties, brother, uh, Michael. Jackson. I got in trouble as a, like a three or four year old. I, oh, Michael Jackson, yeah, he, but but yeah, but Michael Jackson, that was like Jackson Five time, right? That wasn't Thriller. Oh, he was on his own by then. Yeah, he's on okay. His own. <laughs> yeah, he he was on his own for a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see here, so. Uh, we've got the, the 78 revelation. We've got Bruce R. McConkie. I think the neat thing that needs to be said here in 2013, the race and priesthood essay is you know, uh, released. So before we move on, why didn't the church use Michael Jackson as an example of black people becoming, you know, light skinned? That's a perfect example, right? I don't know that he was at the time. Yeah, I don't oh, know that he was at the time. I don't think that was, I don't think all those surgeries were happening that early. Oh. Um, yeah, that's, oh, a, that's a podcast on its own. I thought it was a yeah, Michael Jackson's thing. life. Um, well, I have a picture. Let me see here. If I got my photo here, and I'll share the screen again. Um, just messed up. Let me share, put that screen back up. One second. Let's see here. There it is. There's uh, President Spencer W. Kimball with Native Americans, and he made comments on multiple uh, occasions about these people getting lighter in skin um, as they had the gospel in their life. Post seventy eight, yeah. by the way, so the so the racism continues. I'm sure it didn't have anything to do with not living, you know, on the res and moving into you know upper middle class white neighborhoods in Orem, right? Getting out of the sun a little bit. Yeah, sure yeah, that. yeah. And by the way, for folks who want to know the actual like line by line item of the history of our racism. Um, we're just kind of highlighting kind of the big points, but uh, Bryce uh, Blankenagel with Naked Mormonism does a three and a half hour podcast and it is just, it's tight. It is one data point after the other um, as he shares kind of some of the things that are going on. That makes um, what are, um, oh, yeah, I yeah, that, please. Um, I collect books uh, on race in our church. I've got several of them, but this is one, I don't know if you can, you see this book here by uh, John? Yeah, Stewart? I see it. That was a, that was a big one. Yeah, this was a huge, huge. Uh, this had a huge impact during its time. The church ran ads, or not the church, but the publisher ran ads in our magazines. I believe in the in the improvement era, um, and in other places, telling people to grab this book because it was the definitive. Um, what's the exact wording here? I know the one ad said unprejudiced, the unprejudiced truth uh, about the doctrines of the church regarding this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those uh, ads are insane too, by the way. Promoting this book? The ads that were promoting this book? Is that what you mean? 
Yeah, the ads that were promoting this book made it clear, like, you know, here's a couple of white authors writing a book about the Negro doctrine and Mormonism, and we are giving the unprejudiced view. This is this is just the truth. We're just telling you what what prophets, seers, and revelators have said as they've spoken directly with Elohim and Jehovah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's how we pose it, that, and that's the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's another. Um, um, since I'm grabbing books, I'm I'm remembering if any of you've got this book. Mark Staker, Harkin, all you people. This was a great, 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 great book. There it is right there. Um, and in it, he talks about Peter Kerr. Um, the church referred to him as Black Pete. He was one of the earliest members of the church in Kirtland. And he was one of the guys, if you remember in Kirtland, uh, actually more in Hiram, there were members of the church that were joining that were believing they were receiving letters from heaven that you know, they fell out of the sky, they would read the letter, and then, of course, the letter would disappear, and then they would go around telling the other members of the church what the letter said. Black Pete was one of those guys that received a letter from heaven. And uh, the church history story of this event is much more watered down, but you remember where Joseph goes to um, <clears throat> visit the saints, and, he, and they're doing all kinds of crazy things like rolling in the aisles and speaking in tongues. You, you remember this story? I think there's a, a section of the Doctrine and Covenants that comes after mm -hmm. this, that uh, the fruits of the Spirit are meekness and mildness and, and that kind of thing. But uh, Black Pete was one of those guys that was very uh, gregarious and had a lot of followers. And um, he also, I think, was from the Caribbean. And um, yeah, Joseph kind of knocked it all down and said, we're not going to do goofy things like that. Plus the letters from heaven thing. It, don't you think it's funny, the letters from heaven? You know, it's kind of funny because, well, you know, and I had some plates, but they're gone now. But I'll tell you what was on them. Other people started getting these letters, you know, fell out of the sky. Of course, no one kept one. Mm, disappeared. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> yeah, all these similarities to proposing things that are absurd. But we have this underlying uh, cultural mechanism that there is a God and he communicates with us and he's able to send us correspondence one way or another. And so when somebody tries to take Mormonism's early story and a similar story, James Strang, uh, for instance, these underlying cultural mechanisms rear their ugly head again. Yeah. Uh, the thing I want to do here is Elder Oaks from the B1, uh, the B1 uh, presentation. I, I, the trouble is I'm going to play this audio, Chris, and you're not going to be able to hear it. I was trying to figure out a way to send it to you and I just, I didn't get to it. So um, I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to stop at a certain point. I'll tell you what Elder Oak said, and we can kind of talk about it for a moment. The audience should be able to hear it, um, so that should work out for them. Um, but let's let's give this a play. It's about 12 minutes long, and we'll see how far we get. Uh, but I think we can kind of maybe wrap up with this and talking about uh, what we need to make of all of this in terms of like really what is you know what is President Nelson as a prophet, seer, and revelator? Is that a is that a legitimate title? Um, and so here is Elder Oaks. The 1978 revelation on the priesthood was an event of such magnitude that it is also etched in memory. The news reached me on a telephone that seldom rang. My two sons and I were working in the yard of a mountain home we built as a place of retreat from my heavy responsibilities as president of Brigham Young University. My sons were between missions. The oldest had returned three weeks earlier, was preparing to leave a year later. 
The earth was caving onto our driveway from a steep slope, and we were trying to stabilize the hillside. We were in the midst of this project, shovels in hand, when the phone rang inside the house. I knew it must be important. Only a small number of people had that telephone number, and all had agreed not to call me about anything that could possibly wait. The caller was Elder Boyd K. Packer. He told me about the revelation on the priesthood, which was just being announced. We exchanged expressions of joy, and I walked back to the hillside. I sat down on the pile of dirt we had been moving and beckoned to my sons. As I told them that all worthy male members of the church could now be ordained to the priesthood, I wept for joy. That is the scene etched in my memory forgettable announcement 40 years ago, sitting on a pile of dirt and weeping as I told my sons of this divine revelation. Why was the revelation on the priesthood such an occasion of joy? As a young man in the legal profession, I lived in the Midwest and the East for 17 years. The restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions. I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. So I just, uh, if you'll unmute your mic there, Chris, I just, um, I just played uh, the first part of it. Elder Oaks and his two boys are up in their cabin. He's the president of BYU at the time. Um, I can hear he's it. working on this. Oh, you could hear it. Great. Perfect. Yeah. Um, he ends there by saying that he had thought about all the reasons. He had read them. He'd, he'd you know, looked into it. And he just never felt good about it. He never felt comfortable about it. And he seems to use that as a way to say like, oh, that was what happened. Like prophets said things and none of us really felt good about it. And so, you know, it probably wasn't true. I wonder Your if thoughts would, there. Uh, well, when I was listening to it, I wonder if he's going to sit down and weep when the revelation finally comes that gay people are okay. And uh, gonna, yeah. You, know, <laughs> you think he's going to sit down and cry? Yeah, no, I don't think he's going to sound crying. Sadly, I don't think it'll happen in his lifetime because I think he it's been his thing from 1984 until now, at least, to make sure that we held our um, dominant narrative ground on LGBT issues. And he is the main um, barrier publicly in the church's rhetoric between us moving to a better space, a healthy space and treating our LGBT folks appropriately. Mm -hmm. Um, so he essentially, but here's the trouble. He says like, look, I never felt good about the reasons. That's still bullshit. It doesn't matter who felt good and who didn't. Tons of members felt good to the point where they testified they knew by the Holy Ghost in, in, in times when they were asked that those theories behind the ban were from God. George Albert Smith knew by the Holy Ghost, by the Spirit, um, that that these that these doctrines, these these theories, which were doctrines, were from God. Like it's one thing for Elder Oaks to go, I never felt good about it. But he ought to follow that up with, there were a whole lot of prophets, seers, and revelators and a whole lot of members of the church who did. Um, it, it kind of, 
isn't fair to paint this like, oh, some leaders guessed on some things and none of us felt good about it. And eventually we cleared it up. It just isn't that, that simple. And what's, what's that, that say about him? And what's that say about him when you have people like Dr. Nelson, who didn't feel good about it either, but actually had the balls to step forward? Yeah. And, uh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. What's that say between, you know, you compare those two guys and their integrity? Hmm. Yeah. And one of them gets called into the Quorum of the Twelve and the other one gets his church membership threatened. Yeah, so there's a certain right. kind of uh, there's a certain kind of persona that moves its way along uh, in being graduated uh, further ahead and further ahead. They they want a certain kind of person as a stake president, and they want a certain kind of person as a seventy, and they want a certain kind of person as a member of the quorum of the twelve and as a member of the first presidency. Uh, bye bye, Elder Uchtdorf. You you said too much. You 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 went too far. You were too nice and gentle, and uh, almost almost apologizing for how we treat those who leave the church and have doubts and uh, and apologizing for our history. This can't be that charitable, man. Can't be that no. nice. No, no. Um, let's continue here with the audio. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. All right, I got to stop again. Um, <laughs> Elder Oaks, every, oh, excuse my language, every, oh, I can't even do it. Every general oh. conference, Elder Oaks gets up and lays out a legal argument for the reasons why we do things. Opposition is not on, you know, while questions are honored, opposition is not. Uh, he and, and all these talks on LGBT people, all these talks on the family proclamation, Elder Oaks, if the Lord rarely gives reasons for stuff, why don't you shut your trap and quit talking? Like, <laughs> quit saying things. Uh, <sighs> Any other thoughts there? No. That seems like a... Perfectly uh, said, a, man. If you don't know why, why don't we stop talking so much about shit that we think we know? We know. Yeah. Stop saying things. Because you're apologizing that your past predecessors, your past peers who are now dead and who you disavowed their, their teachings. You're saying like, look, they guessed on theories and they shouldn't have done that. God rarely gives reasons. And then you go out every six months and you give reasons for everything. I mean, you're the guy who's constantly giving unhealthy reasons for unhealthy things that we're doing that are changed someday. And you're going to be disavowed. Yeah. Insane. Well said. Here we go. We'll continue. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders uh, no shit. <laughs> and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Now, Let me just yeah. say, by the way, I bet he spent a if, lot you're, of time on that. if you're a wuss and people around you are being traumatized and harmed and you're doing things that hurt people, and you stand idly by and don't speak up because the people doing the hurting are, are your peers that you want to be loyal to and show deference to. Um, you're really just not a good human being. You're honestly, honestly, you're just a piece of shit. And so I don't understand why we put this kind of mechanism, this kind of personality up on a pedestal when the reality is if you stand by while somebody weaker is being beat up in an alley, and you do nothing about it, and you just walk by because the person doing the beating is your friend, then you're you're just a piece of shit. I don't understand how people can come to any other conclusion than not speaking up when you know that you're wrong. When you're like, look, we're not doing the right thing here. This The people are being hurt by this, and you don't speak up. 
why that's some kind of godly attribute. That that doesn't make any sense. Does that make any sense to you? No, and it seems even more egregious that they call themselves apostles. It's one thing for you and I not to speak of, but we don't walk around with a title claiming to speak for Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Just forget the one. Just the hand of the 99 and not worry about the one. Don't worry about what we do to those guys. Doesn't matter. Let's just be loyal. Loyal is right. Yeah. Because op you know, questions are honored, but opposition is not. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Elder Oaks. Now that day had come, and I wept for joy. Many Latter-day Saints felt joy at this news. Members of African descent who had accepted the gospel despite the restrictions very small. Most these uh, these aren't just like the word restrictions. Like ah, uh, I'm not allowed to eat dairy. I've got I've got dietary restrictions. Um, that's that's not what's going on here. People of color. It's not just a priesthood ban. It's not just, it's, it's a salvation ban. It is, you are a second class citizen and you are, you are not uh, able to participate as a regular member of the church. You can't go to the temple. You can't bless anybody. You can't bless your children. You can't baptize your children. You have to ask somebody else in the ward to baptize your kids. You have to sit outside the temple and wonder if your family is going to be together for eternity while the rest of these white folks get to go to the temple and be sealed. Um, it's not just a basic word of restriction. It It is trauma and unhealthiness and bullshit to the exponentially hundredth degree, what these kids and, and parents had to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, their salvation was uh, unassured. I, it makes me think about Jane Manny James, uh, you know, the, the black a female member of the church that served in the mansion house with us. Um, coincidentally, she's the only female, young female maid in the mansion house that Joseph Smith did propose plural marriage to. Um, yeah. That, you know, immigrates with the saints, moves west, and asks every prophet, I believe, up until Joseph F. Smith, if she can have the blessings of the temple. And each prophet says no. Each prophet says no, and I and I believe it's Joseph F. Smith. I could be wrong, but um, he says, "Okay, well, you can be sealed to Joseph Smith." And she was married. You can't be sealed to your husband, but you can be sealed to Joseph Smith as a servant. And she's not even allowed to go in the temple. She waits outside while someone else goes in and does her proxy work to become a servant to Joseph Smith in the next life. Now, what kind of bullshit? She has to be sealed by proxy by proxy to be a servant, an eternal slave to Joseph and Emma Smith. And that's the compromise after 50 years of asking prophets, 40 years of asking prophets for her uh, to, to have her endowments done for her. That's the compromise. That's the brethren giving in. That's, <clears throat> that's the compromise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a comment here. Sean says he should have felt shame in himself, right? Like here's Elder Oaks going, I'm proud of the fact that I was loyal to the brethren and kept my mouth shut, even though I disagreed with them. And the reality is he should have felt shame. He, he should feel shameful for lacking uh, courage, for lacking honesty, for lacking the uh, risk, for not wanting to put at stake and take the risk of telling his peers 
that they're probably wrong on this issue because he knows he stops his being promoted. Mm-hmm. He knows he becomes uh, an untrusted voice among the leaders. And then we watch him get into office and he just perpetuates this kind of abuse under just a different issue's name. He's not, he's not any different than George Albert Smith. He's not any different than Brigham Young. He's not any different than Bruce R. McConkie and, and Marky Peterson. Elder Oak is the same kind of guy, just with a different gospel hobby topic as uh, his sounding board. Exactly. Nailed it, man. Exactly. Uh, here's a back to him. Who rejoiced were Anglo-Americans like me, who witnessed the pain of black brothers and sisters and longed for their relief. Oh, uh, I was one of the good guys. I was one of the good guys who who wanted the, the church to, to make changes. And, you know, some guys didn't want that. But, you know, I'm Elder Oaks and I'm one of the good guys. Among those who also wept for joy at the priesthood revelation were Dr. Russell M. Nelson and then <laughs> Deputy Commissioner <laughs> yeah. of Education Henry D. Eyring. Yeah, these guys are leaving for joy. Men had lived outside the somewhat isolated environment of the Mountain West in a total of. They had also witnessed the pain of this restriction. You know, us, us first presidency, you know, me, me and that guy, President Nelson over there and that other guy, Elder Eyring. Um, and I, and I, by the way, I believe Elder Eyring wept because you can't even fix him a tuna sandwich without him crying. Uh, yeah. That guy cries at everything. <laughs> that guy, that guy walks home and, you know, and, you know, it doesn't matter what someone asks, you know, he gets his, gets his foot rubbed by his wife and he cries. Guy opens the newspaper and he cries. Guy cries at everything. No, so I believe no he wept. on his eyelash. and he he weeps um but oaks tries to make the point here like us this first presidency we're loving we're compassionate we knew those other brethren were wrong and we just we couldn't wait for the day that uh that this priesthood ban was lifted and we got excited about all this it's it's so funny to have 2020 hindsight because i'd love to talk to david or uh elder dallin oaks in like 1960 and I'd like to see what 1960 Elder Oaks really thought, because I know what 1990 Elder Oaks thought about homosexuality. I know what 1995 Oaks and 2000 Oaks and 2010 Oaks, 2018 Oaks. I know what he thinks about uh, homosexuality. I got to believe the guy very easily holds the church position when it's the right position to hold inside the church. Um, I, I just don't I don't buy this guy as so liberal on, on racism, but his homophobia has got the best of him. Right. Yeah. Back to the audio. When we consider what has happened in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in the lives of its members since 1978, we all have caution. Institutionally, the church reacted swiftly to the priesthood. Ordinations and temple recommends came immediately. The reasons that had been given to try to explain the prior restrictions on members of African ancestry, even those previously voiced by revered church leaders, were promptly and publicly. Chris, where did that happen? Where in 1978 did church leaders promptly and actively disavow the past theories that were promulgated as doctrine where did they disavow those in 1978? Could you point me to that? Mm-hmm. You're you're a really smart guy. You've got a lot of books mm-hmm. there behind you. Could mm-hmm. you point me to that one? 
I think the year wasn't 78. It was 2013, I believe. First time, right? right? Think that's, so? that's what promptly means to Elder Oaks. 78, 88, 98, 08. <laughs> 35 it, years? 35 years later, yeah. 35 years later, Elder Oaks acts. See, this is rewriting history. This is gaslighting. This is gaslighting, everybody. Gaslighting is a, this is a perfect example of gaslighting. There is not a single instance of the church talking about and quickly and promptly disavowing these theories in 1978. It's not until, as Chris pointed out, 2013, the gospel topic essay on race comes out. And it's there that the church disavows these theories. And they want to call them theories, but the reality is, in the past, these were doctrines and members were allowed to hold those beliefs. I had members in my ward who still believed and talked about those things openly with no pressure to not say them all up until 2005, 2010, when I started to notice that those kinds of things weren't being mentioned anymore. Um, and then 2013, the church officially removes them. I, it's hard to trust these men when they say this kind of shit. Quick personal uh, story uh, about 05, 06. I'm sitting in gospel doctrine with my next door neighbor, Philip Pierce. And this topic is being discussed in gospel doctrine. And the members are, you know, all hopping on the bandwagon of saying, well, this was just a policy. This was just a procedure that was changed. And uh, I made a comment and got up and left. Uh, there was a, a member of our state president was sitting next to on the other side of Philip. And I said, you know better, man. You know this was a doctrine. You know that what's going on here today is um, it's gaslighting, it's changing history, and it's, it's dishonest. Why don't you stand up and tell everyone that this was a doctrine? It's not my place, but you certainly could do it. And he sat there and said nothing. And Anyway, I essentially got up and walked out and became really good friends with my neighbor, Philip, who said, well, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> I want to walk out, too. I want to say some stuff. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, there, there's a juxtaposition of you in that member of the stake presidency, you having the courage to say, like, we're not allowed to just lie about or or obfuscate or um, change the story. And again, it can be intentionally and unintentional uh, to change the story to reflect a different history than what actually happened. We are obligated, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how. Uh, much pressure or risk is at stake to tell things honestly. And here's the member of the state presidency who's just like Elder Oaks. He knows the truth because I, I know the story of this guy. I know who this gentleman is. And he knows the history well enough to know that you were right. But he also doesn't make everybody uncomfortable. So he allows the false teaching to be perpetuated and allows you to look like you're a fool in the room. When in reality is that you're right. These were doctrines. These weren't theories into, to, until 2013. Yeah. Yep. Let's, uh, let's continue with a couple more minutes of this. Institutional policies or practices that could have inhibited the full integration of members of African ancestry, such as the separate congregations common in many ch Christian churches, were prevented by the continuing LDS policy of ward membership being determined geographically. Similarly, membership to make no mention of race or ethnicity. 
the Lord had spoken through his prophet and his church obeyed. In contrast, changes practices of individual members do not come suddenly and universally. It's your fault, Chris. Yeah. It's it's the members of the church's <laughs> fault. <laughs> yeah. I I don't oh, these all right, so I'm not a Mormon anymore. I'm out. They excommunicated me and I I lost my my belief long before that and I kept speaking up and I'm out now. I don't even know how I could give these men any deference anymore. They're just not even good human beings. Like he Elder Oaks has no problem standing in front of a camera and just bullshitting the active membership so that they feel comfortable. Meanwhile, folks like you and me, and there's Philip, by the way, who was in that class with his comment there below. Um, there's you and me and Philip and others who are speaking out and saying like, guys, this, this isn't how this thing went down. And it doesn't matter whether it makes us uncomfortable or not. We've got to talk about it. Elder Oaks is, to be honest, just, I couldn't, I can't give deference to these men anymore. They're 15 men and they're in my rear view mirror. They're, they're no longer a healthy example to me. They are only an example of how to be unhealthy towards other human beings. Um, anyway, you and I have debated forever, whether or not these are just good guys that, are doing their best, or if they're actually not good guys, not people of integrity. Um, and, and what does Elder Oaks' conversation here point to? It sure seems to point to not someone of integrity, not yeah. someone of character. Yeah. Hmm. And and you've watched Elder Holland lie back and forth. You watched Elder Ballard uh, build his business venture on that that tabernacle thing, and the church bought it out. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard rumors about. Uh, other general authorities and some of the things their children have done and how those serious um, things have been swept under the rug. We watched Thomas Monson's son sexually harass some lady at his law firm, get fired, and then get hired at Curtin McConkie a week later. Um, we've watched uh, Elder Bednar's wife look like the, like the most scared wife in her body language. I watched wow. these 15 men, and they just don't seem like good men. I was thinking of uh, Hamela. Uh, Elder Hamula got excommunicated. Yeah, took the money from. Took yeah, the money and, New Zealand. yeah, now and then what Larry happened, Elder Hamula? Now he worked for Larry. Yeah, H. the church Miller. went to church went to Megaplex and the Larry H. Miller uh, car dealerships and said, "Hey, you owe us a favor. Any chance you could pick this guy up?" And suddenly, Elder Hamula just works for somebody else. Looks like it was Philip funny because was defining moment on his way out of the church. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, I think he saw what courage and honesty looks like. So yeah, thanks a lot, Phil. Uh, appreciate, appreciate you chiming in. Um, yeah, just, it's crazy what we justify in the church as upright men and good behavior as NA Johnson points to, they seem to be nefarious. And I, I completely agree. There might be a good guy or two, maybe elder Christopherson, decent guy, his brother sure seems to think so. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Elder Rasband's a good guy, but when these 15 act collectively, the mechanisms in place for them to act makes them deceptive and nefarious and deeply lacking in uh, integrity. We need a list of documentation on those things. Um, some of those things are out there. Some of them I don't have permission to go into uh, by the people that were involved. And so as, you know, protecting those voices that are on the victim side, um, I am obligated to keep some of that quiet. But some of those things are out there. I put out there the whole thing with the um, Gateway Mall in City Creek. Um, and then some of these things with Ballard and the car dealership, uh, Paul H. 
Thomas S. Monson Jr. Um, all of those things are out there. You can just do a search. Quentin Cook, by the way, another one. Quentin Cook screws the city out of a land deal, and then a hospital gets gets the benefit yeah. of it. And what does the hospital do? They put him on the on the board of the hospital. Um, <laughs> just in crazy stuff. These just guys are just—they're not good people. Yeah, just, good, just business. good business. Just good business. Um, yeah, it's funny. I here we work for a pawn shop. You you own the the family pawn here, and I work as the manager for family pawn. And pawn shops have this bad reputation for dishonest and lacking integrity. And and here you and I are saying like, my gosh, I cannot understand the unhealthiness that is among these fifteen men. I'll tell you, I would put on our honesty up on a daily basis to these guys anytime, anytime, any day of the week. And twice on Sunday, but for but not for two hours. Um, let's get a couple more minutes here, and then I will get out of here. Some accepted the effects of the revelation immediately and gracefully. Some accepted gradually. But some in their personal lives continued the attitudes of racism that had been so painful to so many throughout the world. Someday there's going to be a quote, Chris, where... We say the same thing from another leader, except it's regarding Elder Oaks and his homophobia. It is, it's the pot calling the kettle black. He's, you know, some leaders weren't able to adjust to the 78 revelations. Some members, and actually I shouldn't say some leaders because he makes it clear leaders aren't part of this. It's just the members who struggle to deal with this. But members struggle to deal with this. They struggle to get rid of their racist views. Elder Oaks is someday going to be disavowed for his homophobic views. Mm -hmm. Yeah including the past 40 years. Others have wanted to look back, concentrating attention on re-examining the past, including seeking reasons for the now outdated restrictions. Shame on those of us who look at our history and examine it and try to figure out what the hell happened with this priesthood ban. Shame on you, Chris, for being uh, interested in history. Shame on me for being interested in history. Shame on all of you watching right now for wanting to understand how somebody can claim to be a prophet, seer, and revelator and not be able to lead the church astray while deeply getting it wrong and leading the church astray. Huh? Well, there's that old saying, you know, you want to hide something from a Mormon, put it in a book. They'll never find it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hide it in the Isaiah chapters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, most in the church, including its senior leadership have concentrated on the opportunities of the future rather than the disappointments of disappointments of the past is what he's about to say. No, look, uh, no shit, Sherlock, that you don't want to talk about it because it's not going to be go well for you. Like it's easy to go. Look, I don't really want to focus on the 17 affairs I had in the past. I really want to focus on the future of my marriage. No, no shit. Cause talking about your 17 <laughs> affairs is going to really be unhealthy and hurt and going to be uncomfortable. It, you and I were talking this thing a couple months lacks. ago. <sighs> you and I were talking a couple months ago when the when that Boeing uh, when those Boeing seven thirty seven Maxes were having the problems. There was a crash or two, and the president of Boeing came out and said, "We're wrong. We rushed this to market. We rushed the avionics to market. We, um, without all the proper testing, we were wrong." Do you remember you and I talking about this? Like this guy yeah. is. They know there are billions and billions in, in lawsuits coming, but they he did the right thing. We were wrong. This is our fault. We, we're responsible. And that's over a plane. You're talking about people's salvation. Why is it so hard to say we were wrong? 
Yeah, I've got about another eight minutes left, and I think this ties right into the last thing we want to talk about. So Jonathan Streeter put out a fake apology uh, when that just before that B one celebration occurred, and you know Jonathan's owned. I, I think it was, I think his ap- fake apology was it pointed to really important things, and I think it's a crucial moment in this conversation. And but I also want to honor that you know Jonathan acknowledges both privately and publicly, by the way that he didn't foresee, as as the church sometimes uses this language, Elder Nelson recently, the permutations of what he was doing. He didn't realize all the ripples it would have. And, and he's apologized, uh, both publicly and privately, for, for that fake apology and some of the trauma, additional trauma mm-hmm. it caused. Mm-hmm. But, but that apology, when it was given, that fake apology showed up. The entire church, minus Mike Tannehill and maybe 100,000 others, the entire church, right, said, wow. This is awesome. This is the thing we've been waiting for. This is great. This is this is incredible. It this is so perfect. This helps us all to heal and to put it behind us and to get better. And then it comes out that the church had nothing to do with it and the church actually like denies like that's not our view. And then Elder Oaks gets up here in the B1 celebration and he essentially says, "No, no, the band's still from God. These theories are what we're debating." Um your thoughts, man, on why how how Mormon leaders can even keep a straight face and present themselves as having any kind of access to God. And this apology would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. The church would have been better for it had that fake apology come from the church. Any thoughts you know, here as we kind of wrap up? Well, you know, Streeter is a, he's a smart guy. He wrote that apology in a way that it sounded real. Um, and he teed it up for the church in that, they could have literally copy and pasted that apology and put it out and think of the celebration. Think of the tears of joy. Think of the relief. Think of the, I think he um, inadvertently maybe, and maybe he knew what he was doing, but by putting that apology out and people believing it, taking him on that emotional roller coaster, which I know he later apologized for uh, even, I think even you and I, when we were discussing it, were sad still that this is not hard. It is not hard to say you're sorry. When you've done something wrong, when you've hurt people, when you've marginalized people, when you've kept people from salvific blessings for 150 years, why not say you're sorry? Why not just apologize? It's easy to do. You know, we're constantly having to say we're sorry in our private lives with people. There's times I've gone on the podcast and said, I'm sorry for something I said or did. Um, it seems like the church is afraid of losing the Mike Tannehills of the church. And I, I don't understand how him and other people like him. I don't think there's a hundred thousand people like him. I think there might be 15, 20, 20 people that still want that ban in place. Yeah. Those people let them go. But as N.A. Johnson points to, yeah, church leaders can't afford to be wrong. It, it damages the perception that they have a direct line to Jesus and Elohim. Um, they don't want to reveal their true colors. And so the lack of vulnerability, the lack of transparency is just, you can see it juxtaposed against that fake apology. Um, lastly, I just want to leave the listeners with a question, which is how could, if you're, if you're a believer, how could past prophets, seers, and revelators under the spirit of discernment know all these things that some of them turn out not to be true? How could they know all these things come from God, know them to be true? And then future leaders somehow have some extra discernment they're able to decide like, oh yeah, the band, the band's from God, but the theories behind it, like those aren't real. Like, 
think about it. Is God talking any step of the way or is the world shifting and changing and those prior attitudes and beliefs no longer can can stand up without deep um, ridicule, bad publicity of the church? Um, these men didn't move because God stepped in the room. These men moved because we now live in a world where those old views had no space to stand anymore. And it feels like progressive Mormonism and ex-Mormonism move Mormonism in a direction where the world says, or the church says the world is a lost and fallen place. And yet the church is always playing catch up with that, that evil dastardly uh, uh, world that's lost and fallen. It just seems like a juxtaposition that really points to a real lack of any kind of direct line to God. Uh, any concluding thoughts from you before we wrap up? It, it just seems crystal clear what you just said. Um, and the internet, obviously that's, that's even the plane filled for all. Now you don't need to have, you know, you don't have to read a whole book and, and find the answers. Now you can find it in a couple of clicks and about a five minute read. You can find the answers to any of these things. Yeah. You can read Paul Reeves book. Um, uh, mm -hmm. what is it? Something, uh, of another color, race of another color, or something like that. Great book, great yeah. book on the race in our church. Yeah. Um, anyway, Chris, I appreciate your time. This this issue's messy, and I think someday the church will apologize. But uh, sadly, I don't think it's any time in the next couple of years. Sadly, I, I agree. Okay. Well, appreciate your time, my friend. Grateful for all of you who turned in, uh, tuned in, and uh, you can check out the audio of the podcast on Mormon Discussion Podcast if you like what we're doing here, this is probably the future where we're going to go with this is just having these live broadcast conversations. I'm sure we'll see uh, see you again joining us, Chris. Um, if, if you like these things, you want to see Mormon Discussion continue, would you please consider donating? Uh, please make a donation at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Hit the donate button. Uh, drop in 10 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year or whatever it is that you feel comfortable doing. Uh, it just helps us to continue doing this. Um, and doing this podcast and helping each of us make sense of all of this and navigating Mormonism uh, one episode at a time. So have a great day, everybody. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.